Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of The Whole Tooth, a podcast all about sharks, rays and their underwater habitat brought to you by the Save Our Seas Foundation. I'm your host Isla and every episode I am lucky enough to be able to sit down with experts in marine science and conservation from all over the world to pitch them your questions about sharks and the oceans. Now this week we are off to the beautiful and very warm waters of the Maldives to learn all about some of its most famous residents, manta rays. Mantas are truly gentle ocean giants known for their grace underwater, their elaborate feeding strategies and their intelligence. It's little wonder that many people are captivated by them, myself included, And the Maldives is one of the most important places globally for these animals, supporting the largest population of reef manta rays in the world. We find out why the Maldives are so special in this episode, as well as answer the brilliant questions you sent in to us via social media. And I am pitching these questions to Lois Flounders, Yanni Mohammed and Simon Hilborn from the Maldivian Manta Ray Project, which is the flagship project of the Manta Trust, a charity dedicated to the research and conservation of mantas. The MMRP was founded in 2005 by Dr Guy Stevens and has since evolved into one of the largest and longest standing manta conservation groups in the world. It consists of a network of biologists, dive instructors, communities and tourism operators from across the region who work together to collect data on the country's manta population, its movements and any threats to their conservation status and well-being. Lois is the regional project manager of the research programme on the Laviani Atoll. She is a marine scientist and science communicator who has written for the Save Our Seas Foundation and Science for Kids and has also worked for the Marine Biological Association. She has worked on projects all over the world, including with another filter feeder who has featured a couple of times on this podcast, the Baskin Shark. Yanni grew up in the Maldives, swimming, surfing and snorkeling, exploring the amazing reef systems, and he developed a passion for marine conservation at a very young age. He is now Research and Education Officer for the MMRP on Bar Atoll, and he divides his time between the underwater world where he gets to hang out with mantas and topside where he visits communities to help raise awareness of the species. And Simon leads the Maldives Oceanic Manta Ray Project, as well as fulfilling the role of Digital Media and Communications Manager for the Manta Trust. Simon has lots of experience as a scuba instructor and a master's in marine biology, which has taken him all over the world before joining the Manta Trust. Now, these three have some of the best jobs out there. I'm incredibly jealous that they get to spend their days hanging out with mantas and exploring the waters around the Maldives and we learn all about that in this episode. Um, It was just such a pleasure to talk to them and to learn from them and they took the time to answer all of your questions about everything manta. I learned so many interesting facts that I didn't know before, like the fact that there is a pink manta and their mating rituals can last for days. Um, There's also lots of talk about sea pancakes and face spoons, which I'll let them explain. So without further ado, let's head to the Maldives and dive into our episode. so much for coming on and you're we're actually on location in the Maldives with you guys right now um and before we kind of get into all of our Mansa questions um I'm gonna ask you a question that we ask every single person on this podcast and I'm always super jealous to hear your answers and I can imagine I'm gonna be even more jealous hearing your guys um but that question is what is your most memorable experience in the ocean So, Yanni, I will start with you. So, with the mantas, I actually have a lot of memorable experiences from just one manta to up to 200 mantas at the same time. But my all-time favorite is when there was just one manta flipping on its white side, belly side up, and following me around in a lagoon. Oh, wow. Wow, so it actually kind of like came along with you. So, there was one very curious manta pup. They just checked me out. Oh, amazing. Oh, that's so cool. Um, and yeah, sometimes it can be it can be even more special. So even when you've been kind of surrounded by these animals, to have one that's really curious and comes up to you, 
is almost kind of more memorable in a way. That's really, really awesome. Uh, Lois, how about you? What was your most memorable experience in the ocean? I can't remember whether you were here or not for this one because this was an experience that I had working with Basking Shark Scotland um, back in 2019. <laughs> Our first year as shark guides there. Um, and it was when we had four sharks that were all circling each other and we managed to hop in the water. And I remember being just in the middle of this, um, what is now coined a courtship taurus um, of these four sharks with uh, four guests. And this wasn't just like for a few seconds, this was 15 minutes or so of just lying pretty much completely still in the water, just doing 360s as these sharks were following each other super closely and spiraling. Um, and then eventually they just dropped away into the deep, presumably to get up to some frisky business, but no one really has proven that for sure yet. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think I spent a good chunk of that 15 minutes crying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for, for listeners, for anyone that's confused, um, Lois and I know each other from our work with Baskin Shot Scotland. We actually uh, did our first year together um, with Baskin Sharks and so... I'm really happy that you've chosen to represent Scottish waters with your most memorable experience. But yeah, I think we... I mean, I couldn't do mantas. That would be way, way too obvious. <laughs> We're going to spend a whole episode talking about them. All right, Simon, what is your most memorable experience in the ocean then? I think my favourite was a day in Hanifaru. Uh, we had about 100 mantas feeding, which is pretty cool on its own. Um, but then we had a couple of whale sharks join the feeding party. Uh, and then the sort of cherry on top was an oceanic manta that, that crashed the party. And to see them, to see an oceanic manta swimming kind of side by side, a, uh, a mass aggregation of reef mantas was super cool because it kept itself apart by about 10 or 15 meters. Um, it was barrel roll, barrel roll feeding by itself um, and the reef mantas were over to one side. And they kind of clearly knew that they were a different species, even though they are so like, so closely related so it was it was just so cool to see that side by side um yeah something i'm not sure i'll ever see again so very cool wow and so do you not normally see them together no it's very rare to get uh both reef mantas and oceanics like side by side um there's a lot of places around the world where both species live um but to actually get them on the same dive at the same time is, is quite rare amazing oh my goodness I'm so jealous I need to I need to somehow get over to the Maldives if I can and see these amazing animals you do I know I know we're going to learn all about the difference between like oceanic and reef mantas and also maybe what what barrel rolling actually means all the way through this episode um but first I wanted to ask you guys about the project itself so the Maldivian manta project and what your roles are within that for me, my role is education and research. So in bar, I focus mostly on education and I do research on the time I get apart from education. And currently I am based on a pilot project far from Bayatol and one of the most remote areas where we are currently learning about completely new population, almost a separate where we see mantas that being sighted here almost every day. Some of them which joins from Baitol, some of them come from Laviani and everywhere in the Maldives. And we have also seen over 70 new mantas in three weeks. Wow, wow. So we just go around taking ID photos, which is photos from their belly which they have unique spots yes yes and we'll um we'll kind of learn a little bit more about how you can id a manta from those those belly spots later on um but so does your role involve kind of being in the water with with mantas sort of uh you know most of the time so i actually do half and half one half is doing the research meaning i go in the water to collect the data basically swim with mantas and then we come back to the office to enter the data and analyze it. And the other half of the time, I used to go to other islands to meet up with people and teach them what we are learning, how we can help the Monterey and the Maldives. Mm -hmm. 
Oh, wow. What a cool job. I would love to be able to swim with mantas for my job. I think that sounds absolutely amazing. And and yeah, so lucky to have you on the podcast as well to sort of teach us all about mantas and all about the Maldives too. And of course, uh, you know, Lois, can you explain to us, you know, what your role is with the Maldivian Manta Project? I'm also fortunate enough to be able to say that swimming with mantas falls under part of the role, um, which is pretty awesome. Um, I didn't realise some of our Laviani mantas were ending up um, up in the north at, well, I can't say the say the name. Makunadu. Makunadu at all, where the pilot project is. Um, so yeah, so I'm the project manager for the Maldivian Manta Ray project um, based on Laviani Atoll, which is north of Mali, in the northeast of Maldives. Um, so yeah, I get to spend a lot of time out on the boats looking for mantas, hopefully finding mantas, and then also hopping the water, trying to get those belly ID shots, free diving below them, um, and also collecting a load of data on the environmental conditions, the currents, the strength of the currents, what the, the wind's doing, what's the sea like, even just if it's sunny or not. <laughs> and this all feeds into a very hefty data set that we have um, that the MMRP have been collecting since 2005. Um, so yeah, and then a lot of time in the office then just data entry into spreadsheets, bit of analysing the data and then contributing that to all of the amazing research projects and um, publications that come out from, from all of that data, which is fantastic. Yeah, brilliant. And I mean, that that is a huge data set from 2005 to be contributing to, but such such important work. And then, and then Simon, how about you? What is, what's your role? Uh, yeah, so I head up the Oceanic uh, Manta Ray Research Project, uh, the sort of oceanic side of the MMRP. So I'm based about 700 kilometers south from where Yanni is at the moment, um, down in the, the deep south of the Maldives. Um, and that's a hotspot for the endangered oceanic manta rays. Um, the majority of reef of manta ray encounters uh, throughout the Maldives are all reef manta rays, but we actually get both species here. Um, so yeah, I'm kind of studying this this subpopulation, trying to figure out where they're coming from, why they're coming to this one island, uh, how big is the population, uh, a lot of the sort of baseline simple stuff at the moment because we just don't know. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff that we that's still yet to learn about mantas. So like even though you even like you say, there's like you know still some of the, the relatively simple stuff I've put that in quotation marks people that can't see you know and still you know we're still learning we still need to find out um and so yeah the, the three of you absolutely perfect people to ask everybody's questions about manta rays too we've got some absolutely brilliant questions to get through in this episode but yes yeah, so this whole episode is going to be about mantas that you guys work with and I thought a really good place to start is you know what do we mean when we actually say a manta ray what is a manta ray Um, and as we move through these questions as well I know you guys have sort of divided them up between yourselves so you're gonna have to keep me right on who's answering what so just feel free to to jump in Um, but yes so what is a manta ray? So manta ray, the easiest way to explain is basically saying it's a sea pancake. <laughs> but love that. if we want to go to a little detail, we can say it is a fish that falls under Elasma branch because as all the other fish, mantas also have gills, which they use to breathe or respire. And they don't have any true bones in the skeleton. So that's what makes them special with all the Elasma branch. Yeah, I love the term sea pancake. I think I've also heard uh, sea flap flap as well. But yeah, brilliant. I will be calling them sea pancakes from now on. <laughs> but we often, we kind of often just refer to mantas, and I know I'm doing that right now, but there, as we said earlier, there are at least, you know, two species, reef and oceanic, that we that we know of. And can can you explain the difference between those two species? Yeah, sure. So um, <laughs> the there are two species currently, the reef manta and the oceanic manta, but there is a putative third species, which is probably going to become official in the next couple of years. It's it's kind of quite commonly agreed that uh, it is a, another species, essentially the, the Atlantic manta ray, um, the exact name still to be decided, I guess. 
Um, the but, but differences between the reef and oceanic, they're quite subtle on first glances. They, they look very similar in terms of shape. Um, the oceanic mantas grow a little larger, up to kind of six, seven meters in wingspan. Reef mantas only between three, four, four and a half, something like that. Um, on the top side, the reef manta rays, the, the white markings make kind of a Y shape, whereas with the oceanics, it's much more of a distinct T um, on, the, on, the, on the back of the manta ray. Then on the underside, uh, the reef manta rays have uh, these spot patterns or markings often between the gill slits, whereas the oceanics only really around the abdomen region. Um, the oceanics also have sort of shading around the, the back margin of the pectoral fins, uh, darker region inside the mouth and things like that. So there are lots of subtle differences between the two species. Um, but yeah, often, unless you see them kind of side by side in a book, um, many people struggle to, to tell the difference at first glance. Yeah, cool. Thank you. So just to make it easier throughout this episode, I will be referring to them just as mantas, just as kind of like one group, as long as people at home know that there are, you know, different species sort of within that. And yeah, really cool that we may possibly are going to get, or probably are going to get an, a third species as well. So uh, our next question is actually one from a listener on Instagram. So this comes from Jade on Instagram, and she has asked, what is the connection between manta rays and sharks? Lois. <laughs> I like it how you're putting your hand up. <laughs> As if we're in school. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take this one, teacher Isla. <laughs> So as, as Yanni mentioned, um, mantas do fall under the elasmobranchs, which is all sharks, rays, and skates. Um, and sea pancakes, obviously a pancake is quite a flat food item. Um, and yeah, mantas are basically just squashed sharks. They, say, they, share, they share a lot of the same kind of um, body components, like their pectoral fins, um, as you referred to them as wings earlier. They kind of do form wings, but they are still technically pectoral fins. Um, but they do share a lot in common with, with sharks as well. A lot of species um, of rays, including the mantas and sharks, need to be constantly swimming in order to breathe um, because they don't use something called spiracles anymore, which are behind their eyes, which they can use. Some species can use to kind of actively pump water over their gills, um, but the mantas don't use these anymore and a lot of sharks don't, so they have to be constantly swimming around they've got dorsal fins too which you can often see poking out of the water um when they're on the surface feeding away um which is quite nice to see their little dorsal fins not quite as dramatic as a up to meter high basking shark dorsal fin but they're very sweet to see um but yeah i guess in a evolutionary sense um they, they are kind of closely related in comparison to the many 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 other species that live in the oceans yeah yeah, uh, that just kind of like reminds me of um, the Dory song from Finding Nemo. I can just imagine lots of uh, sharks and rays swimming around being like, just keep swimming, just keep swimming, as they have to go. <laughs> swimming, swimming, swimming. <laughs> <laughs> this, does, this does occasionally come up in my manta briefings. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine, I can imagine. Um, so this is a question actually that comes from me. It's something that I was interested in, is that I've read that you can get different color morphs so some you know you can get some individuals that are that are all black and some individuals that have you know different coloring um and i just wondered you know if you can talk a little bit about this much better than i can and also you know why why does this happen sure so mantas are one of the few species especially in the ocean that um we get examples of uh, melanistic individuals uh, so it's basically um a, a genetic um, mutation and there's a greater uh, production of melanin or the skin pigment sort of coloration in the skin and that's uh, basically produced in much higher quantities and the the animal is basically dark all over so yeah we get uh, the most common type is uh, or coloration is the chevron manta ray um, but then the we also get black morph individuals or melanistic ones, which are almost jet back completely all over. Um, they look kind of like stealth fighters. And then we also get leucistic um, manta rays, which are much more pale in coloration. Um, so yeah, we kind of get a whole spectrum, um, different types all, all around. 
Um, and there is also one pink manta ray uh, found <gasps> on the east coast of Australia, um, which is what? a one of a kind. <laughs> yeah, uh, I think they've named it Inspector Cluso after, um, <laughs> after the pink panther. Uh, which Brilliant. Is quite, quite cute. Um, <laughs> yeah, another example of melanism in nature is the black panther. So that's just uh, basically for a, a leopard, but with melanistic uh, a melanistic individual so you get these black panthers um so it's the same uh with manta rays we get these uh jet black individuals but here in the maldives despite having the largest population of reef mantas anywhere in the world we have no melanistic individuals in our database which is quite really? interesting really does, does anyone know kind of like why why that might be uh so far there is only one um Obviously, the ocean's a big place, so there might be more out there, but uh, Inspector Cluso is currently the only <laughs> pink reef manta in the world. Um, when the photographers first saw him and took photos, they were like, hmm, I've definitely messed up the color ba um, white balance on my camera here. Um, but no, uh, the team's taken tissue biopsies. It is genuinely pink, uh, and they've looked at, like, the diet and stuff of the animal, the stable isotopes, I think, um, and they've they've determined that it's not dietary. So it's not like the pink flamingos or anything like that. It's, uh, it, they do think it's uh, just a genetic mutation and, and this manta ray is pink. Um, I'm still looking for a green manta ray, but um, <laughs> I, I haven't found Maybe one Maybe there's yet. a little group of like rainbow colored manta rays all just hanging out somewhere and discovered. It's, it's the lucky <laughs> skittles that are dotted around the world. <laughs> Collect a colored manta ray. Imagine, yeah, because that would have been my first thought that it was like diet related, but. God, that's so cool and random. Yeah, we were talking last week to uh, Tom Hart, who studies penguins, and he told me that penguins have some penguins have pink poo as well. So it seems to be a theme like throughout this podcast. <laughs> but yeah, that's really cool. Oh my goodness. Um, okay, so our next question also comes from someone on Instagram, but they've got a very uh, odd Instagram handle. So I'm just going to read out the letters. Um, so this comes from STVN. G-S-X-H. I'm not even going to try and uh, try and say that. Um, but it's a really good question. Um, so they say, what are the two large fins near the manta's mouth used for? Are they fins or are they modified gills? So who's going to take this one? I'll take this one. Um, so they are called cephalic fins. They are fins um, and they do look like horns a lot of the time um, when they're just cruising around when they're not feeding they do have them rolled up so they do come up cruising it's one clear way of telling whether a manta is feeding or not um, but when they do feed they will unroll these cephalic fins and basically turn themselves into ginormous scoops ready to just soak up all of that plankton in the water column um, but they'll only do that when they are feeding um, so yeah, they're basically just to turn themselves into to giant scoops. Face spoons. Face spoons. That's quite a good name for them. Face spoons. We'll be stealing that one. <laughs> there we go. They're not cephalic fins. They're face spoons. <laughs> face spoons. Great. So we've got some sea pancakes with some face spoons. <laughs> the technical term. Yeah, and for, because this is an audio medium, uh, you guys at home couldn't see this, but Lois was demonstrating uh the <laughs> way that the fins go on the head like two little horns and and how they feed so yeah so they kind of use those fins to like channel the the food kind of into their mouth in a way correct, correct. <laughs> thank you <laughs> all right so moving on to another question from instagram this is from sarah kerr uh, and she asks, in which habitats do they thrive or, you know, which habitats are most important? Yes, this is another, um, I guess, separation between the two species. Uh, the reef manta rays tend to hug more coastal regions, um, living fairly close to, to shore, whereas the oceanics are much more pelagic, spending time in slightly further offshore waters. Uh, with the reef mantas, they tend to, well, both species are what we call... Um, I live in subtropical, tropical uh, waters um, all around the world. So kind of either side of the equator. Um, the oceanic mantas do are seen all the way up to the Bay of Fundy in Canada and the North Island of New Zealand uh, south. So it's actually quite a huge range, um, but they definitely prefer the kind of um, uh, 
equatorial regions. Uh, with reef manta rays, they like uh, like atoll systems where there's lots of productivity, lots of plankton. Um, these are filter feeders, so they they're feeding on some of the tiniest animals in the water. Um, so they need to feed on on huge quantities of this to kind of uh, survive. So it needs to be quite productive areas. Um, yeah, areas like the Maldives where there's lots of reef systems and atolls, um, shallow areas for them to kind of gain protection and, and things like that as well. Yeah, brilliant. That sort of kind of links links us on to the next question, which was, you know, why is why is the Maldives so important for mantas? So yeah, as Simon mentioned, any water that is productive where there's food, it's important for the mantas. And the Maldives stands out because in the Maldives, they haven't really been commercially f fished. That means the populations are pretty healthy here. And in here, currently, the threats for the mantas are very, very low. And the, and the waters of the Maldives is really productive. So this is a safe haven for the manta rays. Great. Yeah, that's, that's really good to hear is that like, you know, it's, it's sort of like a little, I don't know, a little heaven for, for mantas to come to and you know is, is that is that just because a lot of the is that because the the areas around the Maldives are, are protected or just because there isn't that much of a you know fishing effort around the Maldives so all the shark and ray fisheries are banned from the Maldives meaning that no one is fishing the manta rays for their gills or necessarily any parts fantastic that's that's absolutely brilliant and just goes to show, you know, how much of a difference that can actually make um, in, in that you're starting to see, you know, or you, you're seeing big aggregations of mantas around the Maldives and it's such an important area for them. That's really, really good to hear. This is another question from someone. What is going on with your guys' Instagram handles? I'd just like to know. This is another one from someone with uh, multiple letters in their name um a h r t m b h s n on instagram but they also add they also asked a really interesting question which is why do manta rays swim in groups um and are the individuals in that group related short answer is no they're not related um Mantas are solitary animals. They tend to live by themselves and sort of wander the oceans by themselves. Bit but like we, huh? Bit like you. <laughs> Just like me, yeah. Lone rider. <laughs> um, but they they do aggregate in certain areas, either for feeding or for cleaning. Um, and those are two common areas where people uh, it's kind of a bit easier to predict where they'll be and when they'll be. So it's often where tourism happens um so yeah we get these kind of small coral reef cleaning stations and lots of manta rays will come and visit those but then they'll all go off and do their own thing or there'll be a big patch of of zooplankton and the mantas all kind of uh pick up on that and they all come and feed together and it's it's often beneficial to feed cooperatively in a group so we get these kind of big aggregations um but then they'll sort of head off and, and the next time we see that individual, it will be with a different group of animals, uh, a different group of mantas. So um, they're not traveling in, in any kind of pod or pack or family grouping. Um, they're just kind of randomly popping up in areas together. Um, so, yeah, when we look at the, the sightings from photo IDs of, of our manta rays in the Maldives, um, it would be nice and easy if they all follow the same migratory routes and they move together as one big group, but that's not the case. And we just end up with hundreds and thousands of connections and different routes and, and movements, um, which, uh, yeah, makes things a little bit more tricky to kind of analyze. So they're not actually kind of like moving purposefully in a group or, you know, doing that for any sort of social reason. It's more of a fact that they're kind of exploiting the same resource or, you know, traveling to the same area for for a specific reason yeah for the most part uh, we also get um courtship trains and things like that so uh courtship behavior and then we'll have uh females being pursued by multiple males so Wait, that's another mean, example the manta conga sorry the manta conga um <laughs> so that, that's another example of when we kind of yeah you'll get more than one individual uh seemingly swimming around together and those courtship trains can last for for hours if not days um Wow. Yeah. Romantic hunger. I'm trying to imagine what, what that would look like. But for days? 
It's a sea pancake conger. This is the new term. Yeah, they don't they don't get a lot of action at the end of it. What thirty seconds before they crash into the reef? Something like that. <laughs> They've got to be pretty efficient about it. We we even had uh, two oceanic mantas end of last year were seen in December, and then I think it was like twenty days later, the two individuals were seen um, in a reef nearby, uh, still in courtship. Mm. And whether those two mantas had been in continuous courtship train for 20 days, um, we have no idea. But they were definitely in courtship at those two points, 20 days apart. Sounds exhausting. It sounds absolutely exhausting. But it's kind of nice in a way because we've talked a lot on this podcast about how, you know, shark, uh, shark romance doesn't really exist. You know, it kind in the shark world, a lot of kind of, Sex is very brutal and, you know, not not particularly not particularly romantic, but that actually does sound pretty that that actually sounds pretty nice, pretty romantic for mantas. Um but um but yeah, so I mean we've we've talked a little bit about mating there, but something that absolutely blew my mind when I was researching this episode was just how many feeding strategies that mantas have. And I mean we could do like a whole different we could do a whole episode on this by itself, but I just kind of wondered if we could talk about uh, talk about some of the main feeding strategies that they have. So yeah, this is actually a huge question because there are so many different types and we say different types at different kinds of gatherings that I'll list out some and explain a little bit for each. So in the Maldives, we commonly see somersault feeding, which is one of the easiest for us to get the ideas because they keep doing the better rolls. So this is semi-salt feeding is better roll where they just swim backwards or like do the fl- flips chasing their tail. They usually do this when the plankton is concentrated in a little spot so they don't have to swim across it. And one of the other is line feeding. So they just feed in line up and down depending on where the foot is. And when they do the same thing on the surface where their dorsal fin or half of their back is dry, sticking out of the water, we call it surface feeding because the foot is on the surface. And then we have piggyback feeding, which is same as line feeding, but when there's one on the back of the other. So for the piggyback feeding, it's usually a big female leading and a smaller male on the top, on the back. So basically a piggyback ride. That's pretty cheeky. <laughs> yeah, and it gets better. Sometimes we see trains of piggybacks. Really? So once there's more than two, then we call it chain feeding because it, it makes a chain of mantas sticking. Wow. And they just swim across in the water. Oh my God, amazing. Like, the more that I learn about mantas, the more I love them as a species. That's just so cool. So you've got, on the one hand, you've got mantas doing somersaults and feeding that way. And then on the other hand, you've got ones just sort of hitching a ride on the back of others. Yeah, and this isn't the best part. The best is when there's more than 20, let's say, sometimes up to 200, just swimming in circular motion. So they all swim anti-clockwise, creating their own currents. From the surface, it looks like a vortex or something. They just all swim in a circle. Like It's amazing. I can't even explain how nice it is. Wow. And you've, have you been in the middle of that? Yeah. I have been stuck everywhere in that. Sometimes we see them all come out of nowhere and start cycloning while we're just in the water. Uh, we also just try to get out of the cyclone so that they can freely do their thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Oh my goodness, that's amazing. Ah! Oh, I would give anything to, I would give anything to be in the middle of a like manta tornado. That's so cool. That's amazing. And and cool that you can actually see it from the surface as well. You can sort of see that vortex. Oh, I love mantas. I'm so glad we're doing this episode. We all do. <laughs> yeah, I suppose. I I mean, if you didn't love mantas and you worked for the Maldivian Manta Project, I'd be a little bit worried. But uh... <laughs> um, our next question is from Drift and Dandy on Instagram. And uh, they ask, can a manta swallow a human? So while we're on the subject of feeding, could that possibly happen? Short answer, no. Um, Well, no, no is the answer. Um, They've got very, very small throats. But I was just discussing um, with some of the other Manta Trust team here 
whether theoretically a very small human could fit within a mouth of a manta. And we reckon probably a very small, a very, very small human, maybe a slightly bigger human if it was an oceanic manta ray. Um, but it just wouldn't ever happen. Um, they, they have very, very fine um, structures on their gill plates, which they use to filter the plankton from the water, um, which they wouldn't want to damage, especially because the gills are also their breathing apparatus. Um, and they have got quite good eyesight and they're normally pretty kind of aware of their, their body, although they do sometimes, they are very curious and they do come in very close to you. Um, as long as you're just staying still and allowing that to be on the mantis terms, they will, they'll go around. So I don't think you'd ever end up in a mantis mouth. <laughs> um, and yeah, they definitely, definitely wouldn't be able to swallow a whole person. <laughs> um, they're obviously going after plankton, which is very, very tiny stuff in the water. So, um, they're just, they're just not after us. We're just not tasty to a manta. <laughs> how big, how big can the mouth actually get? So I know you've, you've, there's probably different answers for, for reef and, um, oceanic. Um, I reckon probably about half a meter in diameter, something around there. Not entirely sure. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So you'd really have to like curl up very, very, very small and try really hard <laughs> yeah i would say the only way they can eat a human is with a fork and knife <laughs> <laughs> well they've got spoons <laughs> yeah they don't need a spoon they just need a fork and knife now <laughs> it'd be quite hard to eat someone with a spoon i would imagine um all right so um another question is kind of kind of on the behavior theme uh, which is, can mantas jump out the water? And that comes from Velvet Belly Lantern Shark, which is an excellent Instagram name. Um, but yeah, can mantas jump out the water? And if they do, what, do we know why they do that? Yeah, they can. Um, both species, the reef and oceanic mantas, are known to, to breach, um, what we call breaching, um, when they propel themselves out the water fully, uh yeah can get completely out of the water so not just the, the sort of head um fully launch themselves out of the water and then come splashing back down um bearing in mind that these animals grow up to kind of four meters seven meters and weigh a couple of tons um it's a uh, quite an impressive feat to be able to launch themselves out of the water um as for reasons why uh the verdict's still kind of out on this um we see them breaching semi-regularly, like occasionally around cleaning stations. Um, so one theory is uh, like parasites or remoras or any sort of hitchhikers on them are kind of annoying and itchy and, and sort of getting a bit of a tickle. Um, so they breach and try and smack down on the water to, to dislodge these remoras and things. Um, so that's one kind of possibility. But we also see mantas breaching um, fairly regularly around feeding sites. Um, so the reasons for that's kind of unknown. Um, we have started to record more and more of these breaching events um, in line with and just before mass feeding events. Um, so we've kind of got an interesting hypothesis that potentially this is related to some sort of signaling maybe. Um, it's beneficial that the man for the mantas to cooperatively feed. So if they could sort of signal to one another that there's plenty of food and, and kind of gather around to, to feed, um possibly uh we're not entirely sure and then uh so yeah those are the two reef mantas but obviously there's all the smaller uh devil ray species and some of those especially the monks devil ray um are quite uh famous for their jumping out the water they're the small small monk pygmy devil rays um and they kind of aggregate massive schools and then they're constantly jumping out the water a lot more um, predictable and sort of flapping their wings a few times before uh, slapping fairly ungracefully down on the surface. I have tried to do that, but I couldn't. <laughs> it's really hard. It's the tip really is, hard. Yanni, to take a, take a really heavy weight belt and drop it at the bottom and then just propel yourself up. I mean, either have practiced this. <laughs> yeah, I was, I, I was going to say, we've drawn quite a lot of similarities there between... Uh, you know, another filter feeder, the Baskin shark, and that they're the largest sharks in the world that can breach, but we we don't quite know why, but a lot of the theories are very similar. Um, and, and yeah, I have attempted to breach several times myself, and it's really hard. <laughs> okay, so our next kind of, our next set of questions are about 
you know, we've talked a lot about how amazing mantas are and, and their ecology and behavior and where we could typically find them. Um, but my next question is, what are some of the, the, the key threats to mantas globally? Because I know we mentioned that um, the Maldives is they're, they're, they're protected there and, you know, there isn't much fishing, but that that isn't the same story for the rest of the world, unfortunately. So what are some of the main threats to mantas around the world? Yeah, unfortunately, fishing is a huge player here. So overfishing is actually the, the biggest threat to 70% of all sharks and rays worldwide, which is pretty crazy to actually think about. And this is certainly the case for the mantas as well, because actually manta populations take a very, very long time to grow. Um, they tend to only have one pup. Um, and this can be between every like two and seven years, depending on environmental conditions, long pregnancies. Um, so they have very low fecundity, which basically just means that they don't have very many young over their lifespans. So it's very easy to overexploit them as a species. Um, so unfortunately, there's two kind of main types of fisheries. There's the targeted and the accidental fisheries. Um, they are targeted for their gill plates. So it's thought in Southeast Asian medicine that you can put these gill plates into a broth and it will kind of help to filter out toxins from your body if you drink the broth. Um, there's no scientific evidence for that, but there is obviously a demand for that. So that then leads people to um, hunt the mantas. Um, and then the accidental fisheries being the other side of it. Uh, this is a huge issue and something that I'm trying to find out more about in the Indian Ocean. Um, continue on that master's work um, but they are particularly and again this is less of an issue in the Maldives because all of the tuna fisheries here are pollen lines so they they're a lot more targeted they don't tend to catch non-target species um, but the big we call them per se nets big circular nets and long line nets out on the high seas will accidentally catch a lot of species like mantas um, and unfortunately because they do need to be Swimming to breathe, we do think there's a, a correlation between the amount of time they spend caught in the net and their likelihood of survival following. So there's a lot, a lot, a lot more work that needs to be done in this area. In yeah, there's a lot of, uh, yeah, other anthropogenic impacts other than the fisheries, uh, like unsustainable tourism in terms of overcrowding cleaning stations and harassing mantas and scaring them off from feeding sites um uh and then yeah other sort of tourism impacts uh, we're getting a lot of pro boat propeller injuries here in the Maldives as boats transition from traditional fairly slow moving donies to uh faster speed boats um the mantas just kind of aren't quick enough to get out of the way of the propellers um and we're, we're seeing more and more injuries uh also entanglements in all sorts of um ropes and lines so a lot of mooring lines uh we've had a number of uh manta deaths as a result of uh boat moorings and things like that so there's a whole range of 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 anthropogenic uh threats but fisheries is by far one of the largest and then we've kind of got the um the the threat on the very near horizon of the climate crisis and, and what that's going to do for manta rays around the world um it's almost certainly going to disrupt zooplankton abundance and distribution so where their food is where it's distributed how much there is um, some predictions suggest that it could uh, zooplankton abundance could drop by like 50 percent in tropical regions um, so these animals they already reproduce so infrequently um, and need to kind of they we think they only sort of reproduce when uh, times are good and there's plenty of food if we start to see more and more years where productivity is low and there's not enough food manta rays might start reproducing even less frequently um, and for an animal that gives birth to one in one pup every five to seven years um, it's kind of a bleak outlook unfortunately yeah not good not good at all um so there's you know you talked about loads of threats there and this is potentially you know another big question but how can we begin to tackle some of those issues we could we could break it down a little bit so i mean uh, talking about you were talking about fisheries and bycatch you know what are some of the things that we can start to do to make that less of a or, or start to address that problem sure so in terms of the the accidental catch of mantas i think the first thing is especially in the indian ocean we need to start kind of learning more about 
how often that's happening, how it's happening, where it's happening. Um, and then we can focus on what we call pre-capture methods. So things like avoiding certain areas, which are hotspots for interactions between those tuna fishing vessels and the mantas. And by interactions, I mean basically them being caught accidentally. Um, and avoiding certain times where that seems to happen a lot or certain areas where that seems to happen a lot. Um, but it's always about working with the fishing industry to try and work out ways that still allow them to get on with what they need to do, um, but whilst having less of an impact on the um, non-target species that are being caught. So fortunately, a lot of the tuna commissions are on board um, with working with us. It can be a bit slow at times, um, but certainly it's, it's going in the right direction, which is fantastic. Um, and then there's other things like gear modifications. So there's there's work being done to trial different, um, just like small modifications to gear that can allow mantas to be released more quickly and and also in a in a way that's a lot safer for the for the um, fishes because they are very big and very heavy animals. Um, so of course that has to be taken into account as well the safety of the crew. Um, and there's loads of different technologies that could potentially be, be used in the future to avoid um, accidental catch of mantas and other species, other elasmobranchs and species out in the ocean. So there's a lot of really, really exciting research being done, which is good. It gives me hope that we can try and address some of these, these very huge issues. They can seem very far away and, and hard to deal with when it's out in the high seas. But um, yeah, there's a lot of really cool work being done. Yeah, we've also made a lot of progress kind of on the international scene um, with mantas and moblids being listed on CMS um, and CITES. Uh, CITES obviously tackling the, the international trade um, in endangered species. So um, all mobulid species are now listed on Appendix 2, which doesn't make it illegal to uh, trade mantle or, or mobular parts, but it, it makes it very difficult. You basically need to be able to prove that uh, you catching or, or harvesting or whatever collecting those individuals had had no impact on the on the population uh, no detrimental impact and as as kind of manta researchers we don't think that that's possible with a species that's um such a conservative life history so technically it should be pretty much impossible for you to export manta parts and sort of tackling that international trade is a huge part especially for the the kind of gill plate trade side of things and in the indian ocean as well since october 2019 it's been um prohibited to like retain mantas when they've been accidentally caught on vessels and that's the case in um most of the regional fisheries management organizations lots of tongue twisters um now so that there, there are kind of um yeah, lots of lots of bits of progress being made, which is good. We just need more and quicker, but we're getting there. <laughs> yeah, one of the most pro most productive ways to tackle this overfishing and to protect the mantas in the Maldives, what they do is to make marine protected areas and some no-take zones. And Hanifaru Bay is one of the most famous places to swim with the mantas. In this protected area, they have made some rules to protect the mantas and they actually enforce it really good. And some of the rules include no fishing of any sort where the manta is gather around. And far from it, around the reef they have allowed some of the fisheries but strictly limited. And to keep it safe from the boat propeller injuries, they have actually made the specific rules for speeds so that we are sure that we don't hit a manta on the way. Also, they have rules for the snorkelers, the number of the snorkelers in the water, how long they can stay in the water, what they can do in the water. And depending on your actions, you might even get a fine or a lifetime ban from the place. So everyone is careful of what they do in there. I know there's a lot more that still needs to be done, but it's, you know, it's nice to sort of kind of draw our conversation to a close on sort of a positive note that things are being done and we are sort of ramping up the protections that are being put in place uh, for these animals. And something else that we, that I wanted to ask you about is, you know, what you guys are doing, which is, you know, collecting data and collecting research on the mantas and finding out uh, important information that we need to know to protect them. 
And as part of that, uh, the Manta Trust has an initiative called ID the Manta, which people at home can actually uh, can actually get involved in. So I wondered if we could um, talk a little bit about this um, and so kind of what it is. And then also, I'm really curious on how on earth you actually tell a Manta apart <laughs> or tell Mantas apart from one another. So, yeah, we just go in the water and ask, what's your name? And they usually respond to us. <laughs> They've got little little name tags. <laughs> Hi, my name's Jerry. I'm just yeah, having a party lunch, and I'm friends with some of them. <laughs> That's nice. That's nice. I'd love to have a banter friend. <laughs> Actually, they have belly spots or spots on their abdomen, as Simon mentioned. On the oceanics and the reefs, it's different, and for every individual, the Spot pattern is different, which can be similar to our fingerprints. How we can unlock our phone with our fingerprint, but no one else can break into it. So yeah, when we are in the water, we always take a photo of their belly, come back to our base, check through our database. So in the Maldives, we have more than 5,000 mantas currently. We compare this photo with all our mantas and make sure it matches with one of the mantas in the database completely. So that means every single spot matches the other photo from the gallery. If they match, it's the same exact one. If they don't, it's a potential new one. And for it to be a new one, a couple of us at least check to make sure this doesn't match to any of those. And for the people who aren't Manta Trust, but if you have seen a Manta or got a photo of the Manta belly, please do send us the photo of the belly through ID the Manta. If you can send the photo with the location anywhere in the world, it doesn't have to be necessarily Maldives. So we just need the location, the date and the time you got the photo. Our staff will ID the Manta, figure out who it is. If it's a Manta that we already know, we will give some information about the Manta. If it's new, then the founder will get to name it. So this is very exciting when you get to name a Manta. Yeah. Yeah, so so cool. Um, and yeah, I I'll link to that in the show notes so people can know where to go if they do have one of these photos and then maybe like the opportunity. Um, but that links me on very nicely to our final listener question, which comes again from uh, Velvet Belly Lantern Shark. He actually sent us two, <laughs> and that is, what is the silliest name you've ever given a manta? Yeah, I can go first. So. Yeah, I think it was a couple of years ago I got the chance to name Amanda and I named it Girlfriend. So now I have a girlfriend. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> you, do, you get, do you get to visit her often? We get visited sometimes, not a lot. <laughs> so quite a long distance relationship then. Yeah, it is quite long distance and we can't text either. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love that. I love that so much. Um, yeah, so Lois and Simon, can you think of your favourite names? I saw you having a little having a little look there. <laughs> Simon has got a cheeky smile. There's so many. There's literally so many funny man's names. And what I love is that they all, well, I, I guess not all of them do, but certainly the, the names that I've like um, been involved with, the namings that I've been involved with, and then there's been guests who have adopted a manta and named them. And Laviani, they, they always have stories behind the names. Um, but one of the recent ones was the Great Raimondo, which I thought was quite good. <laughs> the Great Raimondo. <laughs> the Great Raimondo. <laughs> this is a juvenile manta that's been seen in Laviani at all. Um, yeah, I mean, a lot of the mantas do have kind of personal names that, that have a backstory or a meaning. But uh, back in the day when heaps and heaps of new mantas were being added by the uh, Manta Trust team, uh, they kind of run out of names. So there's a lot that clearly don't have any backstory. And you can go through the, the branchial gallery and there's Mars Bar, Twix, Bounty, Snickers. And you can tell what was on the mind of the researchers at that point <laughs> as they're just listing all their favorite chocolate bars and then cereals. And Yes. There are so many mantas named, but after food. <laughs> so I was hungry. <laughs> With 
with that, I'm going to bring it to a close because I'm aware that you guys have got to run off soon. But it has been an absolute pleasure to talk to all of you and learn all about the fascinating world of mantas. I am utterly convinced now that I need to come out to the Maldives, regardless of, you know, what it costs. I'll sneak in someone's suitcase if I have to. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but just before we leave, um, I just wanted to ask um, if people want to find out more about your work or you know more about the project where can they head yes yeah, so you can find us obviously the manta trust website uh, is full of information and resources and um yeah interesting snippets www.mantatrust.org um and then also on all the major sort of social media platforms we're on youtube facebook instagram twitter um, and also specifically for the Maldives project, the Maldivian Manta Ray project also has its own Facebook and uh, Instagram page as well. So do check that out for specific updates about what the project's getting up to on the research side of things with the mantas, but also lots of the um, education and outreach work that um, the team like Yanni up in, in the north of the Maldives are getting on with. Um, really, really cool stuff. Great, thanks. And as always, I will, you know, put links to all of those in the show notes and you'll be tagged in social media and stuff. So if anybody, I hope uh, a lot of our listeners will want to find out more uh, so you can click there and you can head there um, to find out more about the amazing work that these guys do. Um, and my final question um, is one, again, one that we ask every single guest on this podcast. It's a very silly question, but it's one of our favourites. Um, and it is, if you could be any species of shark or ray in the world, what would you be and why? And I've actually specified uh, here that they can say manta, um, because every time we get someone that works with a particular species, they're like, oh, I shouldn't really say that. Um, but I mean, I would love to be a manta. So, um, so Yanni, I'll come to you first. If you could be any species of shark or ray in the world, what would you be and why? Hmm. This is one interesting question. Yeah, I think I'll go with the zebra shark. Ah, okay, interesting. Because all they do is lie on the seafloor all day and be pretty. Sounds about, <laughs> sounds about right for you. Sounds <laughs> Lazy and pretty. Yeah. And eat amazing seafood like mollusks and crabs. Just a dream. It does. It, sound, it sounds like the absolute dream. All right, Lois, <laughs> what would you be? Um, so... I've just decided that I would like to be an oceanic manta because I'm currently down in Formula, which is um, where the oceanics show up during March and April for a short period of time. Um, but I'm only here for another week or so before I go back up to Laviani Atoll. And I would quite like to meet one before I leave. So I'd like to be an oceanic manta so that I can tell me and all my buddies to come in the next few days um, and show up. <laughs> So that I can then go back to being human me and meet one in, okay. in real life. That's an unusual reason, although quite close to quite close to um, what Freya, uh, Freya Womersley was on the podcast a couple of weeks ago, and she said she'd like to be a whale shark so that she could do her science better. So kind of kind of similar similar. <laughs> Okay, so you'd be an oceanic manta ray. Simon, what would you be? Um, I reckon I'd be a, a monk's pygmy devil ray because uh, they get to hang out over in the Pacific coast of Mexico, which is one of my favourite bits of ocean um, ever. You get all sorts of cool stuff. Um, hammerheads, orcas, heaps of whales. Um, and you get to swim around in big groups and just jump out the water all the time. Looks like a lot of fun. Okay, and on that note... I'm going to bring this to a close, but it has been absolutely wonderful to talk to all of you. Thank you so much for giving up your time to come on the podcast. Um, and yeah, have fun in the Maldives. Um, we'll all be extremely <laughs> jealous sitting here at home. See you in July. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Thanks, Isla. Bye-bye. This podcast was brought to you by the Save Our Seas Foundation. It was hosted and edited by me, Isla Hodgson. Our beautiful artwork is by Nicola Poulos and the wonderful jingle you can hear right now is by David Knight. If you like this episode, please be sure to rate, review and subscribe. It just means a lot to us and it helps more people to find out about sharks. A 
huge, huge thank you to Lois, Yanni and Simon for making time for us and providing brilliant answers to our questions. You can find out more about them, the MMRP and the Manta Trust in the show notes. And you can also find out about a very exciting job opportunity that they have available. Um, So I'll put all the links to that as always in the show notes for this episode. And if you want to get in touch with us, pitch a question, suggest a podcast topic or just say hi, we'd love to hear from you. Just drop us an email at isla at saverseas.com. All right. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Have a awesome week and I will see you next time.